Well, my husband, Rob, is uh, the field strategy director of Global Aid Network. Uh, he does humanitarian aid for crew, and his job takes him away to different places in the world, uh, maybe one or two weeks at a time every now and then, and our daughter, Ember, who is two and a half, when I tell her daddy's on a trip, she understands now that that means that she's not gonna see him for a couple of days. And, and, and her understanding of this has evolved. She now understands that she won't see him for a couple of days, but, but she's experienced this enough, this absence and then this homecoming to know that he is in fact coming back, that she will see him again. And so when she was a little younger and had less of a cumulative memory uh, of this experience, uh, when he would leave, she would get pretty upset about it. Even if he was only gone for a couple of days, she would, she would walk around the house looking so pitiful and, and say, I lost my daddy, <laughs> which, which to a mom feels roughly equivalent to having a year of your life sucked away by the machine in the pit of despair. And so sometimes um, when I'd get her up in the morning and get her you know, diaper changed and all that stuff, she would say things to console herself. Uh, and one of the things that she would say is, mommy, daddy's downstairs, which was adorable. And I'd have to say, oh, I'm sorry, baby, but daddy's still on a trip, but he's coming home soon. Daddy always comes back. And I thought that was super cute and super sweet until one night, uh, I'd just gotten her ready for bed and we read a book and, and she just wanted to sit with me in the chair for a couple of minutes. And so she snuggles up next to me and puts her little baby cheek against my cheek. And then she starts to whisper in my ear, Daddy's downstairs. Daddy's downstairs. Daddy's downstairs. <laughs> so that was about the most terrifying 15 minutes of my life. <laughs> Time is somewhat less meaningful to Ember because she can't read a clock. I don't think she strictly knows the difference between taking a nap and going to sleep for the night. It's all relative to her. So when she's happy and her needs are met, uh, time flies. But when she's sad or she's missing her daddy, time can seem to go very, very slowly. And the things that she's waiting for seem to take forever. And the longer that they take, the harder it is for me to convince her that they are still coming. The passage that we're dropping in on today comes from the book of Malachi. And at the time of his prophecy, Israel found themselves in a position of waiting and the wait had gone on far longer than any of them had expected. We'll read the text through first and then I'm gonna come back to, to parts of it after I give you a little bit of context. So if you have your scriptures with you, you can open up to Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13. I'm gonna read right out of my notes because the ESV version that I'm using, the Bible is like bigger than this podium. So I do own a Bible, FYI. <laughs> Starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. That, that the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 
Malachi is easy to find because it is the last book in the Old Testament before the New Testament begins, and along with Ezra and Nehemiah, it records some of the last bits of scripture we have before uh, that time between the Testaments. So Malachi is sometimes referred to as the, the, the prophet of the waiting period. And unlike most prophets uh, who, who would have been bringing a word from the Lord in a time of change or, or upheaval, Malachi and his contemporaries are, are, are preaching at a time uh, to Israel when nothing is really happening. They're subject to foreign rule and they're being taxed, but not beyond what would be expected under such an arrangement. They're experiencing scarcity, but not starving. They're generally enduring the common hardships of a fairly normal life, but they're doing so under the expectation that God at any moment is gonna act on their behalf, that he's gonna come in and return his glory to the temple, his, his, his Shekinah glory to the temple, and that he's gonna throw off the yoke of foreign rule. And they had some reason for believing this. Remember, God had chosen Israel to be his display people and through them to bring blessing to the whole world. This was their mission, to be people who lived lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that the rest of the world wanted to know the God they lived that way for. They were supposed to live in love in such a way that made the rest of the nations curious about God. That was their mission. And so we know from history that Israel started to fail this mission pretty profoundly, breaking the laws and the boundaries that they weren't meant to be punitive, they were meant to bring blessing into the community. These were laws and boundaries that, that helped them understand how to take care of the land and the animals, how to have a relationship with, with each other, how to honor God, how to prevent infectious diseases from spreading. God can be incredibly practical when it comes to showing us how to live well. But they began breaking these boundaries. And so God allows them to go through a time of refinement because remember, it's, it's not just Israel's salvation that's at stake here. They are God's plan A for the rest of the world to make the world curious about him. And so they have to be holy. Their holiness is key to the success of that plan because without it, they look just like everybody else. And that's not gonna make anybody curious. So God, in an act of grace to the rest of the world that he's trying to rescue, God allows this time of trial to turn his people away from the terrible decisions they're making. And part of this refinement, this trial, comes in the form of exile. Jerusalem is conquered by Babylon uh, and the people are carried off as plunder in 586 BC and then Babylon is conquered by the Persians. But, but during this exile, uh, the, the Israelites had begun to repent. They begin to cry out to God and he hears their cry for deliverance. And as a result, Cyrus of Persia allows them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild around 538 BC. So after a couple hiccups that I'll tell you about another day, they finished the rebuilding of the temple around 515 BC and we're dropping into the story about 70 years after the finishing of that temple. So I'm gonna start in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? There's an adversarial edge to the, to the dialogue between God and Israel in the book of Malachi. There's only 55 verses here and 27 of them are questions. They're, they're Israel demanding an answer from God or vice versa. The people had been waiting 70 years for God to act since the completion of the temple, but nothing was happening. The, the cloud of glory that had come down and surrounded inside the temple when they first built it was not returning to it. Where were the nations of people streaming to it as prophesied in Zechariah 8? 
Where was, was the livestock and the men so, so numerous that the walls couldn't hold them in Zechariah 2? They were still living under foreign rule. Where was the victory that God promised to win for them in Zechariah 9? The people had been waiting for so long, and the longer that they waited, the harder it became for them to believe that the promises were still coming. And so by this time, there had been a complete breakdown of the trust one shared between Israel and her God. The people begin to view their creator with suspicion, not reverence, with resentment, not love. And so this, this facade of religious duty is still carried on, but there's, there's no heart behind it because people, generations of people are dying without having seen these promises and they're asking, does it, does it matter if we actually serve God? What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Baldwin writes, Malachi's prophecy is particularly relevant to the many waiting periods in human history and in the lives of individuals. He enables us to see the strains and temptations of such times. I love this next line. That imperceptible abrasion of faith that ends in cynicism because it has lost touch with the living God. In his book, A Theory of Cognitive Dissonance, Leon Festinger argued that the, the self seeks an internal consistency of beliefs. So when met with competing belief systems, uh, we will resolve that tension by uh, rejecting one belief system and completely and totally adhering to the other belief system. So basically when, when people uh, have competing facts, they will throw out one set of those facts and cling to the other ones really, really tightly because we can't live in this state of, of competing beliefs. People do this all the time. That's how uh, tobacco companies could get away for decades with saying that cigarette smoke doesn't cause cancer. It's, it's how we can assume the stupidity of people who have different political views than us, no matter how smart we know them to be in all other areas of life. I do this, you do this. But when, when my husband and I first got married, um, I, lived, I moved into his... Uh, 400 square foot garage apartment in Avalon Park. And, and neither of us owned a double bed, so we pushed our two twin beds together. Uh, mine had a pillow top, so there was like a ledge between us. And it was not luxurious, but it was home, and we loved it. And my husband's a really big guy, if you've met him. He's 6'5", um, and, and not just his height, his, his personality, uh, his volume with which he ha has normal conversations. And as I discovered in our first week of marital bliss, um, his snoring was also proportionately loud. And I didn't have a strategy for this, you know? So, so uh, these first couple nights, I'm, I'm waking up every hour, every few minutes sometimes to chainsaws and landmines going off next to my head. It was like having an infant, but with none of those wonderful brain chemicals that make you feel bonded to your tormentor. <laughs> so every so often I, I try to kind of creep out into the living room and sleep on the couch, but invariably he would wake up, just shoot up out of a dead sleep and say, wait, wait, stop, where are you going? Why are you leaving? And I would say, you're, you're, you're snoring, it's just keeping me awake. And he would say, with all sincerity, I'll stop. <laughs> and you know, he's, he's so kind and so loving. And I knew that he actually believed he could will himself to stop snoring. So I, you know, I'd lay back down and I'd try again. But after a couple of weeks, y'all, you could see it on my face, the wear, you know? Uh, and so, you know, one night he's, launching a space rocket from his throat. And, and he's also one of those fortunate individuals who like falls asleep within seconds of hitting the pillow, which just adds insult to injury. And so I'm, I'm trying to creep out into the, into the uh, living room and he wakes, he wakes up and he's like, wait, no, 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 don't go, I'll, I'll stop snoring. And I was so tired 
I was so tired that I just cracked like an egg and I yell, shut up, I still love you. If I stay here, I'm going to die. <laughs> it wasn't my finest moment. I have never told my husband to shut up again in our <laughs> remaining five years of marriage. Uh, and I did beg his forgiveness the next morning after a really good night's sleep. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating to me that it took him, he's a smart guy, and it took him a really long time to accept that he actually couldn't uh, triumph over his snoring out of the sheer strength of his love for me, despite the mounting uh, com competing evidence. The people in Malachi's day were, were faced with competing beliefs, and, and they just chose wrong. They just chose wrong. They were certain that they understood their situation more intimately than God, and so they were shouting accusations at him to help him see the error of his ways. They had so lost touch with the evidence of God's grace in their lives, both, both on the larger scale, like the fact that he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and done these incredible miracles, which he reminds them again and again to tell their children and their children's children in Deuteronomy. And on, this, on the smaller scale, the more recent scale, they had just been given permission to walk out of Persia, the city of their captivity. They, the, Persia had nothing to gain by setting them free. They'd been given permission to leave. And not only that, Cyrus of Persia gives them materials. He gives them timber to go back and build their temple. And, and listen, that's not a coincidence. This is a fascinating bit of history. Cyrus of Persia, the one who, who sets the captives free, is identified by name in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, who is prophesying 200 years before Cyrus is born, speaks about him by name as the person who will release the captives. I will raise up Cyrus to fulfill my purpose and I will guide his actions. He will restore my city and free my captive people. Isaiah 34, 14. You see, there already was evidence. There was evidence of God's love for them, but the length of the time between when God's promises were made and when they were fulfilled was making it really hard for the people to believe that those promises were gonna come true. The weight was killing them. And they, they knew the prophecy, they, they, they knew the word, so, so they knew that the time was coming soon. But because of their pain, that, that word soon began to take on the disappointing meaning like it did for my baby girl of not just yet. So they do what people do when we're in pain. They look for some kind of relief and they begin to remedy the situation with any means possible to them and this leads them down this road of small and then increasingly grievous sins. So by the time that, that Malachi arrives on the scene, their wickedness is in full swing, only it's not an, an outright departure, an outright abandonment of the law. They're still doing some things, at least outwardly, to adhere to the requirements of the covenant. The people are walking around in mourning clothes to, to represent their repentance. They're bringing sacrifices to atone for their sins. They're bringing offerings into the temple. But, but we see, as God continues to question them through this book, that, that it's, it's just all show. The, the sacrifices they're bringing are, are animals that are lame, blind, uh, mauled, sometimes stolen from their neighbors. And they're bringing in some offerings, but not the full tithe, the 10th of their earnings that is required of them to fulfill the covenant. They're, they're just bringing in a little bit and their stinginess is causing suffering for the orphans and the widows who are, who are dependent upon the church's charity to survive. They're oppressing the hired workers and all, all with this outward display 
of religious showmanship and it is making God incredibly angry. He says in chapter one, I wish one of you would shut up the doors to my temple so you'll stop making offerings in vain. How can I accept this? He's saying, listen, I wish you would just stop doing this altogether. I don't want your offerings. What I want is for you to see yourselves as you actually are, to see your true condition instead of fooling yourselves into thinking that you're doing something that honors me. And then you, you feel shocked and appalled when I don't answer your requests. They've so lost touch with their God. They have so failed in their charge to remember these things and teach them to your children and your children's children that they no longer believe serving the Lord has any benefit nor any consequence for them. And they are behaving accordingly. And in fairness, these offenses didn't all happen at once. There's a progression in the book. So, you know, it probably started out small. And, and for good, there, there was actually some good reason for it. There was a drought. So, you know, of course I can't bring the full uh, crop offering into the storehouse. And, and, and there was an animal blight. And so, you know, my animals are sick. I, I don't have that many left. I can't offer a, a young, strong male bull. Israel didn't just wake up one day and, and say, hey, I think I'm gonna break all the requirements of the covenant of the God who rescued me out of slavery. No, that... They're just like you and me. They, they began to respond to the pressures of their circumstances. That slow simmer of stress that increases so gradually over such a long period of time that you don't even notice you're off track until you can't find your way home. They begin to respond to the, to the pressure of their circumstances and they begin to make these little compromises. Maybe if I just hold a little bit back, not everything, not forever, just, just a little bit for right now, maybe that'll get me through to when the prosperity arrives. And all this time, God is slowly unraveling his plan of blessing over them, but their view of what blessing means has gotten more and more narrow as they've grasped for what little comforts that they can get in their own means. And so now, even if God were to fulfill all of the promises right now, immediately, they may not even want what he's promised them anymore because it's so different than what they've decided to expect that it doesn't even feel like a gift. Some of you in here have waited half of your adult life to be a mother. And now that you are, you don't know where you went your life is diapers and midnight feedings and arguments about whose turn it is. And you feel like who you are apart from what they need has been lost. And you're not sure if it's coming back. Some of you in here have, have been looking for the one and you finally found her, but, but now her drinking has gotten so bad that the things that you call normal, you know in the back of your mind other people would call chaos. And you wonder to yourself if you're ever gonna be able to live a normal life when this is over, if it's ever over. Some of you are just waiting to get better like me. And, 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 and you want God to fulfill the promises because you feel like you're holding up your end of the bargain, right? You're, you're reading your Bible, you're praying your prayers, you're bringing in your tithes, you're not getting wasted, you're not sleeping around, you're not even smoking that much anymore and you feel like maybe someone has lied to you because you wanna ask the question, what is the profit in my keeping his charge? 
And the thing that's so frustrating is that you don't even have like a big ticket item to point to that's making you miserable. You're not an alcoholic, you're not a drug addict, you're not having an affair, you're not at rock bottom. But listen, you might be at rock middle. You haven't lost your faith, but you have lost your joy. It's not a disaster, it's not a crisis, it's, it's the small little annoyances and malfunctions that add up day after day that make you feel like you will die if you don't get some relief. And you know this is life and everybody's dealing with something and you just have to get through it, but the things that you are using to just get through it, you know deep down, are not healthy. But they're also not a problem yet either because it's just temporary, right? I'll stop when it gets easier. It's just for right now, it's just this once, it's just until, when? I'm gonna tell you a secret that we don't advertise much at church. The, the trouble with sin is that it works. It does offer relief, at least temporarily. I think we do our teenagers a disservice when we sell them this line that you know, sex before marriage is gonna wreck you, it's gonna give you low self-esteem, and for sure all that is true, but that's only half the story, right? Before it does any of that, it makes you feel great. It makes you feel like you found what you wanted, feeling loved. And then they think about all these warnings that we've issued them about sex before marriage, and, and they're smart. They, they, they put two and two together, and then they apply that to the full spectrum of forbidden fruit, and they think, well, they lied to me about the sex before marriage. I wonder if they, <clears throat> if they lied to me about the, the drugs and alcohol as well. And we lose our credibility. We gotta tell each other the truth. We have to tell each other the truth. Don't let anybody fool you. Sin works. It is not a question of whether or not it brings relief. It's a question of what else it brings along with that relief. A lot of you know that I'm going through this process of diagnosis for a possible autoimmune disorder. Uh, and I have these weird symptoms sometimes and one of them that I had this past summer was uh, interior uveitis, uh, blurred vision. I had a hard time reading books, uh, reading text messages, et cetera. And so um, since we don't know what it is yet, we're basically treating symptoms as they appear. And so I go to my rheumatologist. Uh, it, I won't say his name, but a good description of him would be if, um, if the old man from up had stayed angry, that's my rheumatologist. So I went to see him and I told him what was happening. And you know, he, he was like, well, you know, I think some such drug has been approved to treat anterior uveitis, so uh, let me get your brochure. Actually, I think I threw it away. Well, it's, it's clean trash. I'm, I'm gonna go get it out of the recycle bin. And so I thought maybe he was joking until he walked down the hallway uh, and, and fished, uh, you know, an item out of a bin that wasn't just clean trash, by the way. There was like a banana in there and like some such bric-a-brac. And he, and he pulls it out, peels something off of it, walks over and hands it to me and says, talk to your doctor about this. That in and of itself was a train wreck of an interaction. But then I started to read the uh, brochure that he'd given me about this drug and, and I got to the list of potential side effects which were downright alarming. Lymphoma, cancer was a possible, like a not so uncommon side effect. And, and I'm thinking, is, is my condition so bad at this point that, that I need to start taking a drug that could give me cancer? Can't we try glasses? First, glasses don't give you cancer. I don't know. Um, so, 
So as I've walked, um, and by the way, I'm pro-medication. I've been on a whole bunch of them since this process started back in June. But, but as I've walked uh, through this journey, I, I realized that this is actually something that happens very commonly. Um, there, there's, there's a drug for just about everything, and they have some of these really frightening side effects that are just kind of swept under the rug, you know? Say you have social anxiety. There's a drug for that. And the, and the commercial for that drug would say, you can be with people again. And, and, and it would open up on a, you know, a bunch of friends going to a concert together. And then there would be like a couple dancing in a crowded restaurant. And then there'd be kids throwing a Frisbee with a dog on a beach. But then this, this little like low, fast-talky voice comes on in the middle. And it says, side effects may include acne, hair loss, mustaches on women, and your face may catch fire in the sun. But you can be with people again. And you're thinking, who would want to? You have acne, you're bald except for your lady mustache, and your face is melting, all Raiders of the Lost Ark style. Who would want to be with people in that condition? All you've done is taken my illegitimate fear of being around others and made it perfectly legitimate. Thanks. Pfizer? And I think it's funny to talk about it in ridiculous terms like that, but, but this is actually, if I'm being perfectly honest, strikingly similar to how we interact with sin, especially sins that are still actively giving us relief. Because sin only advertises the relief, not the side effects. And so the commercial for infidelity would say, you can have passion again. And it would show a, a couple kissing in the corner of a bar and then you know, flash to some nondescript body parts and then there would be lots of gazing into each other's eyes. But then that little low voice would come on and it would say side, effect, side effects include fear, guilt, shame, divorce, thoughts of self-harm, and you may ruin other people's lives. Sin might deliver that little shot of passion that you want so badly, but it will also deliver a whole lot that it never mentioned. And at the end of the day, you're gonna be left with none of what you asked for and a whole bunch of stuff you didn't and certainly don't wanna keep. Rock Middle is the beginning of a series of small steps in the wrong direction. It's not yet infidelity. It's not even pornography. It's crowding out time with your spouse to go and sneak off and watch movies that make you feel something. It's sitting in silent desperation and not reaching out when you know you should and you could. And I know it doesn't feel like a lot, but these are steps and they are moving you in a direction. They could be tiny little itty bitty baby steps, but you take enough of them and you're gonna get where you're going. I think one of the saddest verses that I've ever heard is is in the beginning of Malachi in verse two, it says, I have loved you, declares the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And it's so sad, not because it's true, but because they believed it. How have you loved us? That's the question of someone who's been heartbroken by disappointment, I know, because I've asked it. And they're heartbroken because they're waiting for something and the thing they're waiting for is really important and the thing they're waiting for is really good. And of course they're disappointed in the waiting. 
The thing that they're waiting for is for God to do what he said he would do, to put his world to rights. The thing they're waiting for is God fulfilling his promises. It's good for them to want it. It's good for them to wait for it. It's okay for them to be disappointed when it doesn't pan out just yet. But what they don't see, what they've blinded themselves from seeing by grasping at what little comforts they can get through their own means is that the thing, the thing that they are waiting for has become far too small. Yes, God's glory is returning to the temple, but not in a, in a cloud to which uh, they're gonna make sacrifices to atone for their sins for the rest of their lives. Yes, God is going to console his people Israel, but not as a military conqueror. God's glory is returning to the temple, but in a much more permanent, much more extravagant way. That temple, the one that they rebuilt, the one over which they mourned because the glorious cloud of God did not descend upon it again, that is the same temple into which Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus for his dedication, the Lord's Christ, the consolation of Israel. Luke 2.25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. God made good on his promise to return his glory to the temple, only it comes not in a cloud, but in a child. God always makes good on his promises, only not on our timeline and certainly not in the way that we expect, but always in a way that is better than what we could possibly hope for or imagine. His character won't let him behave otherwise. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. What I find so lovely about God's response here to the accusation and the cynicism of Israel is that he asks so very little of us that causes him to move toward compassion. It doesn't say that they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes. It doesn't even say that they ran out to bring in the offerings that were better, the full tithe into the storehouse. It doesn't say any of that. It says simply they spoke with one another. And I checked like a bunch of commentaries because I thought surely this is not the thing that made God relent, but it is. They spoke to one another. I think the pain of waiting can drive us in a, in a couple of different directions. First, it can drive us away from relationship. And that's what's happening here with the people who, who are hearing Malachi's prophecy. Or pain can drive us toward relationship. Those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. It's so simple. What did they speak about? They spoke about him, the things that he had done for them. They reminded each other who he was and what he had done for them. It's a reference to Deuteronomy when the people of God had been reminded of everything God had done. And he says, write it on your doorposts. Tell it to your children and your children's children so you don't forget. So in the day when the difficulty comes, and it will, in the day when the difficulty comes, you'll be able to remember that I keep my promises as I've always kept my promises. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, reminding each other of, of, 
of what our circumstances will tempt us to forget about who God is and who he says we are. And God embraces them for this tiny seed of faith. I know we live in a world that craves certainty. I, I crave certainty. And, and I think that's the reason that we cling to these seemingly innocuous little sins and comforts that eventually cling to us because there is a kind of certainty that we're gonna get what we're looking for. But listen, even in a concrete modern world, faith is still faith. Faith still requires a measure of uncertainty. Otherwise, it's just mathematics. It's just cause and effect. Otherwise, our belief in God will always live or die by our circumstances, and we will find ourselves always, at the end of the day, asking tragically, how have you loved us? Even in the midst of miracles that we have become too blind to see. We take a step of faith by speaking with one another so that we don't forget the goodness of God in the presence of sin. There are a thousand people at Rock Middle who sit in these seats every week and they're terrified of speaking with one another because that would betray the fact that they don't actually have it together and that they do need a little help and they're not really sure where to ask for it. And there's probably someone here who's at Rock Middle who would love to be at Rock Bottom but you don't have a choice because someone has to get up and take care of the kids and someone has to go get a paycheck, and someone has to wash the clothes, and you're the only one left to do it, and you would give anything to just melt down and let go and be the irresponsible one and let someone take care of you for a change. Listen, there's another way to live. Please don't let the pain of waiting push you away from people instead of towards them. There is another way to live, and it doesn't require you to do more or to be more because it begins with, with nothing more spiritual, nothing more difficult than this. We speak with one another. I want every single person in this room to come uh, to, to, to regroup on Monday, unashamedly, because that's the place that I went to where there were people I could speak with who reminded me of the goodness of God in the presence of pain, and it changed my life. So we're gonna hear from a few of those people right now. <laughs> 